Well, I hope it's a good morning for you. Uh, we're getting into the summer months. We still have some folks waiting to graduate, and we're going to have a promotion Sunday, the first Sunday in June, where we'll announce all those together. It's good to have some of our college students making their way back. Others are yet to come. We have two, two of our young men, Micah and Andrew, are still in Israel, so continue to pray for them. They're the, over there with a the school ministry trip, and Lord willing, they'll return this Thursday. Uh, as most of you are already aware, there was another shooting this week, and it just reminds us that evil is around every corner. And uh, when you come to a passage like Revelation 17, it's heavy just to read. And you can imagine as a pastor coming to this chapter and having to preach on this, and yet there is, through this, once we look at it, there are threads and sort of glimpses of light that shine through the darkness uh, of the gospel. And we're going to try to highlight that this morning after what has been another heavy week. For some of you personally, it's been a heavy week. We certainly then want to continue to pray for the folks down in Santa Fe, Texas, as they grieve and mourn the loss of loved ones, as another family grieves and mourns what their son did. Sometimes that family is overlooked. And so... We, of all people, should not be shocked when we read the headlines, when we see this kind of evil reveal itself. We, of all people, understand that behind uh, humanity is an evil force that is at work, and it is alive and well, unfortunately. But the good news, if you get down to the the latter part of Revelation 17, is that they're going to go and make war with who? With the lamb, right? It's a great image, making war against a lamb, and the lamb conquers them. That's the gospel. That's the good news. It's exactly what 1 John 3, 8 says, that Jesus Christ came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. And for us, we can rejoice with that future perspective, though right now we grieve and we minister to those grieving, and we are reminded that we are still on mission in a world that is being deceived. This past Wednesday evening, several of us uh, over in the fellowship hall considered Psalm 73, where Asaph, a man who most likely founded one of the temple choirs, this is a godly musician, was reconciling or trying to reconcile the tension that exists between God's moral government, how he's running his world, and the evil that Asaph clearly observed around him. And the conclusion actually starts in verse 1 where he says, truly, God is good. So Asaph's already worked through this, this tension and he ends by saying, no, truly, God is good. Asaph provided a personal testimony when he said this in Psalm 73. But as for me, I almost lost my footing. My feet were slipping and I was almost gone. For I envied the proud when I saw them prosper despite their wickedness. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever seen arrogant people prosper and you seem overlooked? And the real question isn't why are they prospering and why am I not prospering? There's actually a theological question underlying all of that. And it is this. How can God be just and let that happen? See, we have believed that if I make righteous choices, then I am immediately rewarded 
with good. And for people who make unrighteous choices, they should be immediately rewarded with what? With evil. And when that's not the case and that doesn't play out in our experiences, we turn to God and question his justice. Matter of fact, Asaph shares his personal testimony and in despondency and cynicism, he asks this. This is actually in Psalm 73. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. Have you ever been there? While the arrogant prosper. It is not neat and tidy and easy to deal with when pure and righteous choices are not immediately met with God's blessing and when arrogant people seem to receive the blessing deserved for the righteous. Asaph continues to share his testimony. Listen to this. Then I realized that my heart was bitter and I was all torn up inside. I was so foolish and ignorant. I must have seemed like a senseless animal to you, God. To be able to turn to God and speak the truth of your own heart is what we call the sweetness of confession. The reason it bothered me so much is I was bitter in my own heart and I acted like a beast towards you. Asaph continues, yet I still belong to you. See how he's starting to speak truth into his own heart. Yet I still belong to you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, leading me to a glorious destiny. Whom have I in heaven but you? I desire you more than anything on earth. My health may fail. Do you know what? Godly people's health fails. My health may fail and my spirit may grow weak. Godly people get discouraged. But God remains the strength of my heart. He is mine Forever, But I want you to listen to another truth that Asaph highlights, and that's going to lead us into Revelation 17. Those who desert God will perish, for you destroy those who abandon you. This is what Asaph admitted. He got so preoccupied with the present that he forgot about the future. And when you get fixated on the present... And you start to see how it seems that God is allowing arrogant people to do evil and get away with it. And the righteous are overlooked. You are forgetting then to look at the future and walk by faith. To walk by sight, we would say, is sensual. Not in the sense that it's sensual like we're used to hearing that word. But you're simply merely walking by your senses. What you can see and hear and smell and touch and taste. And your whole world is absorbed with a sensual view rather than walking by faith in a future reality. What we're going to see this morning is we're actually into the third, the final section of Revelation. So in Revelation chapters 1 through 3, we saw this vision of Jesus Christ. And by the way, it surprised John what Jesus looked like. We see a vision of Jesus Christ and then letters to seven churches. Then in chapters 4 to 16, we saw three sets of seven judgments, right? The seven seals were broken open, seven trumpets were blown, seven bowls were emptied. Now we're into the section in Revelation that we have, I think, been longing to get to. And that is where we are going to see through repeated visions, the ultimate triumph of God. That's really what 
Robert read to us this morning is the first scene and the first image of God's ultimate triumph. Chapter 17 has to do with the fate of what kind of person? What was the image? A female prostitute. And it's a shocking image. It's even shocking to say that out loud sometimes. And so John sees this image and she will be identified with great Babylon. So you have this great prostitute identified with great Babylon in chapter 18. And she stands for, of course, the interpretation, (coughs) excuse me, is given towards the end of the chapter where the angel says, I'm going to tell you who the woman is and the waters that she's sitting on. The woman stands for civilized humanity apart from God. Or humanity in organized rebellion living in godless community. Chapter 17 has three subdivisions. This will be our outline this morning. First, John sees the woman. Secondly, he receives an explanation of her significance. And third, he is informed of her punishment. First, the woman seated on the beast. Verses 1 through the first part of 6. Now I'm going to read this again, and sometimes the reason we, we do read the actual text we're preaching from is so that it is becoming familiar to us, so that the, by the time I read smaller sections, and then we explain and apply even smaller sections, it becomes familiar to us. Why? Because the Word of God must remain central in Christ's church. Look at verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, came and said to me, Come, I will show you, and here's the topic, here's the big idea of chapter 17, the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Vivid picture. There is a woman sitting on... The many waters, of course, later on, the woman is a great city and the waters are many people, many nations and other kings are being seduced by her and not only the kings, but the followers of those kings who are also drunk with the wine that she provides. The angel tells John, look down in verse 15, because we're going to we're going to jump right to the interpretation that, that God's word gives us. He says this, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are what? Are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. Now, we've we've kind of gotten into that description before when it was talking about the mission of the lamb in taking the gospel and that people who would believe come from where? From every tribe and tongue and people and language. But there is a sense where this city, personified as this woman, is having this incredible influence over many peoples. Then he tells them in verse 18, the angel tells John in verse 18, the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. So here's the picture, so we don't get confused with the image. You have a ruling city of the world and the world under her control. Okay, personified as a female prostitute and as many waters. 
Now, the kings of the earth, whether through trade or commerce or cultural issues or venues, are seduced to keep a close connection with her, and they remain under her influence. After John sees the woman sitting on many waters, he is carried away. Look at verse 3. And he, the angel, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness. That wording is very similar to what happened with Jesus when the Spirit carried him into the wilderness where Satan confronted him personally. Uh, it's interesting how the term wilderness is used in the book of Revelation. Let's keep, uh, let's keep reading. Carried me in the Spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman. I remember, he had already seen her sitting on waters. Now out in the wilderness, notice how the description gets more vivid. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. See, that wasn't in the first description. That was full of blasphemous names. And it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations, and notice what he sees next. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The angel, by the spirit, takes John out to wilderness. He sees at first the woman sitting on many waters. When the angel takes him out into the wilderness, it seems as though John's perception gets even clearer and Leon Morris states this, the spot chosen for John's standpoint, a wilderness, is significant. Throughout this book, the wilderness is the place for God's people over against the great city. It is the negation of all that the city stands for. And in the wilderness, one is safe from all that the great city can do. It is only here, only in detachment from the great city, that God's people can see her as she really is. If they identify themselves with her, they will be blind to her essential nature. Let's take a look at this description. As if we are in the wilderness, let's try to see her accurately. She is sitting on a scarlet beast. That beast should be identified with the beast in chapter 13, verse 1. The woman, a great city, is in very close connection to the beast. Now, that's so obvious, right? She's... She's riding on a beast, but what, what you're intended to see is this close connection, sort of with a, as a, a rider with its horse, and the horse, in this case a beast, is supporting her. So underneath this great city of incredibly evil influence, underneath and unseen, typically, is the beast. The great city who prostitutes kings and nations is an underlying evil force supported by the beast who carries her. Wouldn't it help us if beyond every temptation we could see the hideous nature of what it really was? Wouldn't it just be great like right there when, when you're being tempted to do something, it would just appear as a venomous black mamba snake? Where your immediate reaction is to put space between you and it and to run and not just run because black mambas have the nature of actually pursuing people. You want to know it's dead. A Central African hunter tells the story that he was sitting in a small hunting lodge and he was sitting on a sofa and his hunting partner across sitting in a chair 
pointed silently, and right behind on one of the beams was about a 12-foot-long black mamba snake. And the guy lifted up one of his favorite weapons for shooting uh, cats, not little domestic cats, lions, leopards, was a shotgun. So he picked up the shotgun and told the man to duck. As soon as he ducked, he shot it. But then they couldn't find the snake. And so he goes on to tell the story that what they ended up doing was burning the hut down. That's what you do with that kind of snake. Is that how we interact with sin? And it's not. Why? Because rarely do we go out into the wilderness with God's word and see it for what it really is. And we allow it to seduce us. We allow it to pull us in. And she's dressed beautifully. But look at how he really sees her here. Full of blasphemous names. Rather than being beautiful as she was represented, I mean, the scarlet, this magnificence, this majesty, this splendor, and these, this gold cup, and all gilded with metals. Rather than looking that way, he finally sees that underneath that beauty, she is full of blasphemous names. Rather than being attractive as she presents herself, she is offensive and full of venom towards God. He also sees this, something else, rather than just the woman and the many waters underneath her, what he sees now underneath her is a beast and it had seven heads and ten horns. Now there is a lot of time spent on trying to identify these kings or kingdoms or these emperors or empires. We're not going to do that this morning. Because here's the point. There is no conclusive evidence that we are supposed to start giving names to them. Okay, other than what Daniel did when he talked about the empires of Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece and another kingdom that was more fierce than all the others, which we assume is Rome. But now how do you start putting names to these rulers? But here's the important point. This is what John is going to see. Satan works through human leadership. Satan chooses to work through human agency, through rulers, through governments, through law, through power. That's the big idea. And these rulers come up and they rule and they are supported by the beast. Look at verse four. She is arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. She is royally robed. This city is brilliant. Some of you have done extensive travel and there are some cities that you go into and you're like, this is a beautiful city. We just passed through one of those cities with a beautiful marketplace and you had the wooden dow ships out in the Arabian Gulf and it just looked clean and right and beautiful. And the kinds of cars that were driving on the streets were high, expensive model cars. And it just felt like everything was in order and it was attractive and that you could live there. Matter of fact, they, their citizens make more per capita than almost every other nation in the world. Just to live there, they pay their citizens thousands of dollars just for living there. Here is a woman and she presents herself as royalty in magnificence with favor. 
And then you notice one thing. John sees one thing and it's gold and it probably is glittering. And she holds a golden cup. But notice what it's filled with. Look at verse four holding in her hand a golden cup. But what is it full of? It's full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. The cup is filled with everything detestable. Look at verse five. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon, the great mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Now, if you've been with us up to this point, up to from chapters one to 17, you'll notice that names on foreheads and sometimes numbers on wrists are a feature within this book. It reveals the objects of worship or allegiances or what people really are at the at their core. So when somebody receives the number 666, either on their wrist or on their foreheads, that is actually a parody, I believe, of Deuteronomy chapter 6, where the Shema is communicated that says, listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your being and all your might. And they were to put that as frontlets between the eyes and upon their wrists. Why? It was supposed God's word, this allegiance to God alone was supposed to guide their minds, their thoughts and to guide their actions, their choices with their hands. This number of the beast parodies the ownership that God puts on his people. And those people are saying they have an allegiance to the beast For it is a human number. Its number is 666. It is the number of the beast. It's called a mystery. Why? Well, first, it's not open and obvious to everyone. Not everybody sees the woman as John sees her in the wilderness. But now the angel is going to make that clear to other people. It is something that was hidden, but is now revealed. And the angel proceeds to reveal who she really is. And I love this case. This this city is Babylon the Great. Okay, that doesn't really help us identify the city. Why? Babylon doesn't exist anymore. Nor does actual Rome. So is there a revived Roman Empire that is worldwide, or is it more than what Rome and Babylon represented in a world system that is encouraging through magnificence and beauty and seduction you to break covenant with the one true God? She in reality is not a city of gardens and beauty and life. She is a dirty, corrupt, foul, lewd sewer. So now the character of the harlot is shown by her name displayed on her forehead for all to see. Now John sees one last thing about her. The glamour of this woman conceals a deep hostility to God. She looks beautiful, but look at the first part of verse 6. She is drunk, not just with the blood of humanity. This isn't just this isn't just uh, cannibalism, but she is drunk with the blood of who? The saints. The blood of the martyrs of Jesus. This is a staggering picture of human government without God. It is a staggering picture of someone who systematically kills the saints, not just a few saints, for she is inebriated with the blood of the martyrs. It's an incredible picture, isn't it? And when you get done looking at that description, you don't feel like you just read Psalm 23. 
right? This, it's oppressive. It's heavy. The city is hostile to God and it will not prove to be your friend if you're a follower of Jesus. For Jesus said this in John 7, verse 7, The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You know, that's why they hate the Lamb. That's why they hate the light. They do not like the light that exposes their darkness. Men love the darkness because their deeds are evil. Jesus says in John 15, 18, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. James Hamilton Jr. asks, Is this the way you think of the world? The harlotry in view is spiritual adultery. The whole world owes allegiance, fidelity to God. The whole world should relate to God as a wife does to a husband in pure devotion. But the world has forgotten God, betrayed him and sold herself to anyone who will pay. The world is a whore. Every human government that does not honor Christ is prostituting itself to agendas and worldviews and national interests that are nothing but pimps and customers. It's an accurate view of the world. It's an accurate view of the world system that even energizes our own country. The second part, and we'll go through these, these last two subdivisions quickly. Look at the significance of the woman and the beast. Look at the second part of verse 6. Look at John's reaction. When I saw her, verse 6, the second part, I marveled greatly. Now that marvel does not mean because she saw John saw that she was drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So this marvel isn't like, oh, wow, he's actually tempted to follow and be impressed. He's, marvel, he's marveling and he's astonished at such a horrific picture. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel or why are you astonished? Why does this surprise you? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. Okay, that's John's initial reaction. Now look at how the beast is defined. A beast that was and is not and is about to rise. What does that sound like? And we saw this earlier in chapter 13 and a couple chapters beyond where Satan loves to mimic what Christ has done. He mimics the mark of Jesus on the seal heads of believers with the mark of the beast. He mimics the resurrection. Look at verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. So here are unbelieving people. They will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. Sounds like a description of who? Of God. Verse 9, this calls for a mind with wisdom. Right? There's going to be a great deception that comes that, if possible, will deceive even who? The scripture says. Even the elect, right? But it's not possible, but it's going to be such a strong delusion that it's going to lead so many people away. So this verse, this verse 9 calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now, Rome in ancient literature was often described by the seven mountains upon which she was founded. But those seven mountains later on, we're going to find out, are also rulers. OK, so the the image here gets a little confusing. Verse 10, they are also seven kings. 
five of whom have fallen. One is, okay, some commentators believe that would have been Domitian, who's ruling at the time of John. And, an, uh, and uh, the other has not yet come, something future from John's writing. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. So there's, the, there's some encouragement. Evil human leaders only reign for a short time. It feels long when you're under it, but it is a brief time in light of eternity. Verse 11, as for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Now, there's a there's a lot of talking about the Nero and the, the, the supposed Nero Perusia or his his second coming where they believed in one of the rulers. Nero rose from the dead. There's all those sort of superstitions. But the fact is, something is going to happen where they believe this person has miraculously, supernaturally risen again. A clue comes in verse 9 where the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. She's now on the waters, now she's on the mountains. This identifies her with Rome. That's how John's audience would have understood this communication. But Rome does not exhaust the symbol. It is the symbol of mankind without God. Humanity organized apart from God. Five of whom have fallen. They died. They're out of the way. One is. One is currently ruling. The other is yet to come. There is one whose reign is still future. Will that be, will that be personified in a single ruler? Or will that be personified in a single city like we see the woman representing? These individuals or kingdoms, it is not clear. What we do know is they are not independent thinkers. Look at the mission they are on together. Look at verse 13. These are of one mind. And they hand over their power and authority to who? To the beast. They will make war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Again, 1 John 3, 8, that Jesus, the Son of God, appeared to destroy the works of the devil. That is his mission. Yes, he also came to seek and save the lost. Yes, he came to save sinners. Paul says, of whom he is the chief of sinners. But he also came to destroy the works of the devil. And look who accompanies the lamb. If you go back to Asaph's prayer, where it seems that we're overlooked, it seems that the arrogant are prospering. Guess who gets to accompany the lamb? Those with him are called and chosen and faithful. So the paradox, the seeming contradiction is now removed. And as John sees the future and the final triumph of God, there are the saints with him. Now, finally, let's look at the punishment of the prostitute. Look at verse 15. Even though they are unified in mission, a disunity will occur. Look at verse 15. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. That gives you a great picture of what evil does. Evil turns on itself. It is never truly unified. Being wicked, they are divisive and act in jealousy and hatred. They will ultimately turn on the woman, the city, leave her in ruins and destroy her. But look at verse 17, because a divine purpose will transpire. 
For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose. So let me ask you, when you get to the end of chapter 17, with such horrific images and very disturbing pictures, who's actually still in control? What does verse 17 say? For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God's purposes are not and cannot be overthrown. God's purposes are being fulfilled right now, this second. Not just here, but throughout the world. Craig Keener wrote, perhaps the most striking statement about God's great rule is the fact that he is sovereign even in their evil. Using it for his own long-range purposes, he can use evil powers to judge other evil people. To be sure, Rome ruled the kings of the earth. But in a far more important way, God ruled Rome and its enemies. The kingdom of the world will one day be God's unchallenged. But his judgments in human history are meant to remind us that even now, behind the scenes, God remains the Lord of history and his purposes will be accomplished. Do you believe that? Or are your feet slipping and you're stumbling and you're wondering, God, why are you letting this happen? And Asaph said that he had almost slipped until he went into the house of the Lord. And while he was there in the presence of God and the presence of his word, he realigned his thinking and he says, truly, God, you are good. Even amidst a world of evil and sin and seduction, you are good. You are a covenant keeping God. Two things are revealed about the woman in verse 18. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the king's of the earth. Now, how do we apply this? How do we how do we just move to a final song and then leave and greet one another and drink coffee? What are what is this text here for? Because I want to make sure we're not simply pointing a finger at fallen Rome because that's easy. Why? It doesn't exist. Or it would be easy to point the finger at some distant empire, some tyrant or some warlord. The world system and its values is a prostitute who desires to entice and seduce people away from God. Do you realize that America has become one of the world's primary exporters of immorality? To the point that Muslim countries have called us the great Satan. Unbelieving monotheists have said America is a sewer. Our propensity for promiscuity, premarital sex, sensual movies and television series and very little concern for modesty is growing. And that is what we export to the nation's. Chuck Colson reported in the mid-1990s that when the Saudi Arabian government demanded that the U.S. Embassy close down both worship services and nightclubs for its American citizens, the United States Embassy compromised and said, can we at least keep the nightclubs open if we shut down the churches? We export popular films and songs that glorify drugs and rape. 
One in five girls and one in 20 boys in America is a victim of child sexual abuse. The great prostitute who is carried by the beast is no marble comic character, nor does she simply live across the seas. This is why John, in a smaller letter, says this. Do not love this world, nor the things it offers to you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. And the world is fading away along with everything that people crave. But anyone who does what pleases God will live forever. Paul writes to the church at Rome, one of the great beasts. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. You realize unbelievers are trying to purchase from the world system what they refuse to turn to God for. They're trying to purchase delight and satisfaction and security and fullness and peace and joy. And they go down to the market and they will pay the highest dollar to try to receive those things. But they will still say no to God who alone can give delight and satisfaction and security and fullness and peace and joy. The bride of Christ, we're going to see her in a couple chapters, is the antithesis to the prostitute. As a matter of fact, it's a similar, it's a similar verse in Revelation 21.9. Then came one of the seven angels and he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. It's a question for us this morning as to who we're following. Do we value the prostitute? Or do we truly value the bride of Christ? Jesus is the head of the church, the bride of Christ, who desires people to experience, listen to what he says in John 10, verse 10, life and to have it abundantly. For which are we living? Let me conclude with Asaph's words in Psalm 73. Those who desert God will perish, for he destroys those who abandon him. But as for me, how good it is to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my shelter, and I will tell everyone about the wonderful things he does. That's our mission this week. Telling everyone about the wonderful things God has done. That's the good news. That's taking the word to the world. That's telling people that in Jesus Christ there is true life. And guess what? You don't have to go down to the spiritual red light district and purchase it. It's free to anyone who asks. Are you thirsty? He's going to end Revelation this way. Are you thirsty? Then ask for the water of life and he will give it to you freely. Stop drinking from the cesspools and the sewer system. Jesus Christ offers the pure water of life. Let's pray.